state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's guest is a physician with a huge range of experience in things like critical care, but most importantly, specialty anesthesiology, and he works in Canada. He also is chief medical officer and advisor to several different companies, including the DNA company, which has a subsidiary. In fact, I was introduced to Dr. David Liepert by Dr. Mohammed, who was just on the show and talked about a DNA and its effects on your risk of the virus. So David, welcome to the show to talk about inflammation and pain. Thank you very much, Dave. I, I love the way you opened actually, because it, it just, it speaks to the fact that pain has a function and, and the number one function of pain is to teach us not to do things that hurt us. <laughs> It, it makes me happy to hear you say that because I, I've said the same thing to my kids. And <laughs> if they're, they're whining about it. And I say, look, kids, when you were you know, 18 months old or one year old and you're learning to walk, the best teacher of all was the floor because you'd fall over and it would hurt and then you wouldn't do that again. And now you know, the, the pain that you're feeling when you eat the wrong thing and your stomach hurts, it's just you, know, you getting told by the world, don't do that again and you can choose to listen or not listen. It seems so rational, but pain itself is irrational, isn't it? Well, it just, if you are being chased up a tree by something that wants to eat you, which is where pain first developed its initial function, um, the pain is a bad thing because it's keeping you from doing the one thing that you've got to do, which is to get away from the imminent threat. But then after you've been through that Im imminent threat, after you've survived that imminent threat, you need to take time to recover and heal. You need to protect the part of you that's been wounded. Um, and you need to know not to get too far away from the tree next time so that you can climb faster. And that's, that's both the short-term and the long-term function of, of pain as a survival tool. My kids, I, I, I've had the same experience with, with my kids, actually. They always hated me uh, when they were going through school because every time they made a mistake, I was really happy. Uh, I didn't really, like, if you get something right, all you learn was that you were right. If you get something wrong, you learn six things. You learn uh, that you can get something wrong. You learn how you got it wrong. You learn what's wrong. Uh, you learn how to, how to uh, uh, make what was wrong wrong, right, you need how you, you learn how to come back from that and you learn how not to go there next time. So you learn a lot more from mistakes and, and pain than from never having anything bad happen to you either. It, it's a major parenting challenge to do that. I, I ask the kids every night, at least I, I did for a while, I'm a little bit off lately, but you know, what are you grateful for all that? But then it's, what did you fail at today? And, and if they don't have an answer, I go, oh, that's too bad. Maybe tomorrow you'll do something hard. Yes. <laughs> so uh, we shall see, but it all does come down to, to pain. And the, the primordial pain molecule uh, is something that I've written about in, um, I think it was in Superhuman, my anti-aging book, because uh, substance P is, is something that's shared by even simple life forms in humans, a, a, a basic pain molecule that seems tied into learning. Can you talk about what substance P is and maybe how, you know, how we get substance P when we feel like we're failing? Is, is there an emotional component to it? Kind of well, walk us through it. 
Substance P is very poorly understood. It's like people even argue about what the P stands for um, because people think it stands for pain. Uh, it actually probably just stands for, for uh, a peptide, although when it was originally uh, identified, I think it, it actually stood for, for preparation. Um, one of the interesting things about pain uh, you have mu receptors, which is the primary narcotic receptor in your in your in your body. You have mu receptors on every single cell in your body. Amoebas have mu receptors. Uh, your myocardial cells have mu receptors. Parts of you that don't experience any pain whatsoever have mu receptors. So, so mu mu receptors receive substance P. Uh, no, mu receptors are are where the 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 uh, endorphins plug into uh, the, the the actual painkiller molecules that we make, because the number one function of the painkiller molecules is to to mitigate stress. Uh, when it first started off, it was to mitigate metabolic stress and hypox hypoxic stress. As we've become more complex that function has just been replicated as we've developed more complex functionalities. And so uh, the narcotic receptor is there to, to mitigate the, the effect of pain on you experientially as a person at every single level. Trouble is that mitigates your ability to learn from pain as well. And that's where substance P comes in. Substance P is is really central in the way our body learns to deal with threats. It doesn't just pertain to pain either. It pertains to inflammation. It pertains to immune responses. And it pertains very, very powerfully to the experiential learning of pain. Uh, that's where a lot of, like you were talking about how you can get substance P from things other than pain. Uh, substance P uh, is also evoked when we have extremely painful experiences because it really adds a flag to that experience so that so that we we experience it much more deeply uh, substance p if you're dealing with an infection if you're dealing with with an injury uh, the substance p adds a flag to that experience so that your body knows to pay particular attention and to learn how to better deal with that next time um, so that so that you learn both as a person but you learn as a system from substance P. Uh, that's a, a powerful way to describe that the mysterious compound. I always thought the P stood for pain, uh, <laughs> but that goes to show what I know, not being an anesthesiologist. The, uh, the interesting thing here is that substance P is also tied to inflammation. And, and the reason I became aware of that is that I was dealing with a really serious problem with uh, bite alignment that was causing systemic inflammation. And I learned that even a misaligned bite can drive up substance P throughout the, the system. And many people have heard of using cayenne pepper to fight inflammation. And cayenne pepper drives down substance P, which drives down inflammation. So uh, by the way, that doesn't work if you're sensitive to cayenne pepper because it has lots of lectins in it. Just so you all know, it's not necessarily good. Uh, and Given that that thing, I said, okay, substance P matters for systemic inflammation. Uh, and you're saying almost anything can turn it on. What happens if we turn it off? Do we get less inflammation? You know, it's again, one of those very confusing chemicals because the answer is both yes and no. Um, that for, and, and, and it's really confounded medical research with substance P because for instance, if you do animal research, uh, you'll see 
good indications that that giving an animal substance P uh, affects their pain behavior. But if you uh, give it to a person, uh, it doesn't affect their pain behavior. In fact, it uh, uh, even increases their experience of pain. And, and that is likely there because um, it's there to help you both recover from, but also learn from your experience. And if we could ask the animals what they were experiencing, of course, if you're having a reflex to pain and that's keeping you from getting better, um, substance P uh, will inhibit that. But then in return for that, it has to make sure that you still learn the lesson from pain. And, and the same thing goes from an inflammatory perspective that, uh, there are some components of the inflammation that the substance P will mitigate, but there are other components of the of the inflammation that the substance P actually will will need to accentuate so that you actually learn from that experience. Given that that our experience of pain as humans is very different than it is in animals, uh, as far as we can tell, and, and that we have an emotional thinking component around pain, and we we wonder about pain coming down the road, but it doesn't appear that any animals, or at least most animals, are uh, living in apprehension, which can <laughs> which can raise their uh, substance P levels uh, or any of the other pain inflammatory markers. Uh, but we can. Um, it, is there something happening now with just the the media attention, even before the whole pandemic thing? Uh, but just where where people are starting to spend more and more time thinking about bad things that can happen. Does that drive a measurable inflammatory response in certain markers that you know about? You know, I don't actually know a great deal about the impact of long-term stress on substance P. Um, having spoken with with Mansoor, I know that that there are certainly significant, even genetic changes that that occur from long-term stress. Uh, one of the things that I find really interesting about the situation that we find ourselves in right now is uh, we're dealing with with, for instance, COVID. Uh, COVID is is uh, uh, doing damage by overwhelming us and causing uncontrolled inflammation. Um, the inflammatory response to COVID is actually somewhat protective. The question is, uh, at what point does it become counterprotective or even counterproductive or even producing injury? The same thing is kind of true systemically. That, for instance, social distancing and quarantine are kind of a social form of inflammation. We're all getting farther apart. Uh, but as we become inflamed by, like if you think about Fox News and CNN and MSNBC and all of these, all of these uh, information sources that we have is kind of functioning like cytokines, they can actually drive useful inflammation where we get concerned about the things that we should be concerned about, or they can drive uh, drive uh, counterproductive inflammation where we get concerned about things that that we either shouldn't be concerned about or things that actually we we shouldn't be focusing on at all. And, and we've got both an internal inflammation going on to COVID and we've got an external inflammation going on to COVID. And we don't actually know what to do about either of those things. And that's driving our stress. And I'm sure that's increasing our substance P levels internally. I'm not sure that it's really driving whatever the societal uh, correlate to substance P is on the on the uh, on the social side, I, I hope it's driving something useful where we start listening to the people who actually give us the advice that we need, rather than just listening to people who wanted to get us angry about uh, Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, um, who as individuals really um, 
the things that they can do matter, but the just the, the the focus that so many people are are getting into about about dealing with this, trying to fix the blame rather than fix the problem, is a truly counterproductive thing, both societally and it's also a counterproductive thing when our bodies are trying to deal with the COVID crisis internally too. So then, uh, let's let's go into cytokines, which are these inflammatory markers. A lot of people by now listening to any news network have heard cytokine storm. And that's how the virus gets us. Can you talk about what cytokines are and what a cytokine storm is uh, and what's really going on when that happens inside the body? Kind of walk people through the steps of, of what's happening. Cytokines are actually uh, very uh, simple chemicals in the human body that our cells use to communicate with each other. And, and cytokines, um, they, they're often... Uh, defined by what they do. Like there are the chemokines that actually affect the way cells move around. There, there are the lymphokines that affect the way our, our lymphatic cells work together. Um, they're communication tools and they coordinate our systemic response. Uh, and when they're functioning well, we actually have a well-coordinated systemic response so that we respond appropriately to whatever we need to respond to so that we learn from it, we deal better with it next time. Uh, when we get into a situation like cytokine storm, uh, which I struggled with when I was an intensivist, has really contributed to my ability to deal with cytokines as an anesthetist. Um, when we get uncontrolled release of cytokines, when we get uncoordinated activity of cytokines, uh, when cytokines start feeding back on each other and our body doesn't actually know what to do to make the, the problem go away, that's when we start getting into what people are now describing as the cytokine storm. Uh, COVID, COVID starts slow and indolently in, in so many people. You'll, you'll be sick for a few days and then it's almost like uh, you go down like a, like like a like a like a, a a stack of cards that that something will happen and suddenly uh, you're overwhelmed and it really looks like uh, COVID manages to gradually overwhelm our ability to respond and then suddenly our our body goes into panic mode and we get this unopposed cytokine rush and suddenly everything is inflamed and your blood pressure is down and your lungs fill up with fluid. And, and your temperature is going through the roof. And because the body doesn't know what to make that, what to make, what to do to make that go away, uh, that, that's where we actually are, are ending up losing people now because we can put them on life support. We can keep them going for a time, but we can't fight against cytokines. We have to find a way to, to fight with them, to actually get them back on track, to get them back focused on what they need to be doing rather than just being released in panic mode. So if your immune system goes in panic mode, says, all right, I, I need to create a lot of cytokines in order to you know, fight the virus or just to respond to it, um, that creates a whole bunch of, of cascading steps in the body um, that ultimately result in sepsis, right? Well, se sepsis, sepsis is one way to get into cytokine storm. Uh, sepsis is basically, uh, the, the assumption is that you're infected with something. Uh, you can also get into a cytokine storm from, from just massive trauma or bad burns. Anything that causes a massive inflammatory response can trigger a cytokine storm. Uh, got it. So 
you're saying that the sepsis is the cause of the cytokine storm or do you get a lot of cytokines as the infection grows and grows and grows until they're at a certain storm where it becomes self-replicating? Yeah, basically uncontrolled inflammation is another way to think of a cytokine storm, that you've got this massive inflammatory response. Uh, it becomes self-sustaining and, and it in fact becomes the problem. Cytokines are meant to be the solution, but but uncontrolled, they they literally become the thing that's killing us rather than helping us get better. I like to think of the controlled burn in a forest the way you know, people who do old style forest management, every, every summer or spring or fall, whenever they would do it, they would go through and they would burn the underbrush and it would go through quickly and it was okay, normal cytokine behavior. And then you let that stuff build up or it's a really dry summer and you get the big trees catching on fire you get this big storm and it's not how it was meant to be. So they're both fire. They just work in different ways. Um, and the reason I, I'm kind of a, a, a fanboy of cytokines is that I had chronic autoimmune inflammation uh, in part from toxic mold and just from other things for most of my life, especially growing up. And I very actively manage my cytokine levels. So I know which herbs you can take, which practices you can do. And I walk around and I'm, you know, not a size 46 inch waist <laughs> guy and my brain works really well. And I very rarely get sick when I used to get sick all the time. So it's been profoundly transformative. But for me, the biggest measure of my cytokine levels is muffin top. If I wake up and I'm swollen around the midsection and my joints hurt, I'm like, oh, I allowed one of these things to get out of control. And it's something I did that's my fault. Um, now, if I got infected with a, a virus or a bacteria, whatever, it's still something I did that's my fault. I exposed myself to it or I didn't have an immune system that was intact enough to deal with it. Uh, so then I take a corrective action. And now that's kind of a long description about this, this managing a cytokine storm. You are seeing patients um, or preparing, are preparing to see patients um, who have COVID and are experiencing a cytokine storm, and you are an expert in cytokines because you're an anesthesiologist. How do you think about uh, approaching the care for someone at the either someone who doesn't want to get the virus, someone who's in the early stages, or someone who's at the hospital? Like, walk me through your your picture in your head of of what you do for each of those things, knowing that you don't want cytokines out of control. Starting at at the first level, the, the stuff that you're talking about, where you're just dealing with your chronic inflammation level, um, uh, that's actually where Mansoor, who you, who you had on, on your show last week, uh, and I started working together because his company was really looking at uh, metabolic, metabolic markers associated with chronic disease um, and, and particularly chronic inflammation and, and even more particularly chronic endothelial inflammation. Uh, he was looking at, at the reason why some people uh, end up with, with uh, uh, chronic inflammation, uh, hypertension, type 2 diabetes. Um, all of that seems to be driven uh, by a chronic inflammation in our systems. Um, that that in fact can be genetically coded for. Some people uh, have an increased predisposition to different pathways of developing chronic inflammation, and and the company that that I've been helping build, My Pain Sensei, we've actually created a chronic pain self management system uh, for patients to use, um, but we've created it with IBM. And, and it's part of a massive uh, database undertaking, really linking 
people's experiential uh, history of chronic pain with different therapies and different functional outcomes. Because one of my big frustrations in medicine is we're so frequently focused on, on economic markers of outcome. Very rarely do we do we have a system that actually is just looking with people, looking at people and working with them and figuring out how are you really doing? Um, and it's just so so we built my pain sensei to do that but of course we're very focused on chronic inflammation and and chronic neuropathic uh, pain which is a form of neuroinflammation um and the dna company uh, has done all of this foundational work looking at things that increase our uh, our susceptibility from an immune perspective uh things that are genetically coded um, things that increase our susceptibility from a metabolic perspective. Uh, we may have a disorder of methylation. We may have a disorder of, of uh, uh, intracellular de detoxification. We may even have, have an increased tendency to some sort of a mitochondrial dysfunction. All three of those things uh, can contribute to a chronic metabolic inflammatory state that, um, yes, it, it gives you a predisposition to chronic pain either inflammatory or neuropathic. And that was groundbreaking in and of itself. But then when COVID came along and, and Mansour looked at the data and, and, and the, the same metabolic markers and diseases that are associated with an increased risk of, of an extremely bad outcome from COVID are, are the diseases and metabolic markers that are associated with the things that they've been studying from a genetic perspective. Um, and so the first step is to identify what your what your risks are and and deal with those even at a foundational level so that you make sure that your immune system is functioning as well as it can so you can resist covid as much as possible make sure that your metabolic inflammation is uh, at the lowest level possible, as you have done, um, and identifying why you may be someone who runs a higher level of metabolic inflammation. In your case, it sounds like it was chronic mold exposure. Uh, other people, it, it'll be something internal. Identifying those things and shoring your, your body up so that uh, your cytokines aren't already tired uh, from, from fighting this chronic state. So you make, uh, you make yourself more resilient by lowering your cytokine levels to normal. Now, how would someone listening say, okay, I, I think I'm okay. Yeah, but my joints are a little sore sometimes and you know, I have some aches and pains and some muffin top, but I don't really have cytokines. It's sort of like when people say, yeah, I'm healthy and you, you look at their labs and you're like, uh, you're not healthy. You just think you are. So how, how, how would you go about knowing what to do if, if you're right now listening saying, okay, I'm in. Uh, for the first time in my life, I want to control my cytokines. What the hell do I do? We're not going to go and get lab tests for that right now. Like, get, Give me the short list. <laughs> well, you know what? Uh, this is where biohacking comes in. This is why I got so excited when Mansur told me I needed to talk to you. Because I was speaking with a nurse last night, for instance. Um, she has done the, the, the very simple things. Um, and, and she said, you know, I didn't know that feeling good was an option. I thought the way that I felt was just normal. And, and she went and, and uh, explored uh, the, the issues that she might be uh, facing with a, with a functional medicine physician. And, and she got on some simple supplements. We're not talking about any really complex stuff. We're talking about vitamin D if you need vitamin D. We're talking about vitamin B if you need vitamin B. Uh, different sorts of vitamin B because depending on, on how you metabolize it, some people don't uh, absorb 
vitamin D or vitamin About D. About a third like of us, right? The, the methylation people and longtime listeners understand methylation pretty well. Perfect. I, I love your, your audience. So dealing with all of those things um, proactively, like try something. What what Mansour has done actually is Mansour has has hacked the genotype. This is Mansour from the DNA company. Um, the the guy was just on a couple episodes ago. Okay. He, he's actually come up with I, I think it's seventy some questions, and and we've got we've got a questionnaire that you can go down, and based on your response to to like how you respond to insect bites and 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 when you were nine years old when your dad yelled at you, he can actually give. Uh, insight into whether or not you need to be on uh, manganese or selenium or or B vitamins. Um, And dealing with those issues proactively ahead of time so that your cytokine system is not already partially depleted, so that your body isn't already dealing with intracellular toxicity, so that when the virus comes along, you are more able to respond to it appropriately. There's a doctor who uh, put together an ICU in New York who is making the rounds online saying, look, I've never seen anything like this before. It's almost like my patients uh, are like someone dropped them off at the top of Mount Everest. Like they're experiencing hypoxic symptoms. Their lungs work and sure we can ventilate them and get a little bit more oxygen into them. But uh, the real issue is the cells aren't taking in the oxygen and you know what, what's going on there and, and sort of scratching his head. Um, I heard that and I said, oh, well, anytime I see higher levels of cytokines, in other words, inflammation, you usually see lower levels of mitochondrial function. In fact, I would argue that quite often the cytokines are triggered by mitochondria who are not working at their level, uh, the level they should be. Um, And so if there's a problem in the mitochondrial respiration, in other words, our ability to use food and air uh, to make energy, well, then of course the air is not getting into the cell if the cells are blocked in doing that in some way. Um, does pain pay a role or does pain play a role in our cells ability to actually use oxygen or is that just inflammation or is it both? You know, our cells are built to be very, very different in the way they look and function from the outside, but the building blocks are the same. They're just assembled differently depending on the function that, that you need for your cell. So if you have a tendency to, uh, to uh, uh, dysfunctional intramitochondrial redox reactions, um, that's going to contribute to an increased risk of chronic inflammation. It's also going to put you at increased risk of mit- mitochondrial dysfunction uh, when you get infected with something like COVID because viruses actually replicate better in dysfunctional mitochondria with with aberrant redox activity. And as your body is struggling with the virus, as the virus takes hold, as the virus starts to replicate better, that virus is using the same substrates that your cell is trying to use. Uh, And so you end up getting into into this spiral where, yes, you end up going into a uh, chronic inflammation, to an acute inflammation, to a intracellular dysfunction, to a mitochondrial dysfunction. And at that point, uh, you develop progressive acidosis. And the more acidotic you get, the less well things function. You're not metabolizing oxygen anymore. Your body uh, is acidotic. It can't eliminate the CO2 appropriately anymore because you're on a ventilator. 
we should pause that for just a second. So there's a bunch of people say, oh, acidic alkaline, I need to drink alkaline water for this. Um, your body gets rid of acidity through breathing out carbon dioxide. That's what we're talking about here. We're not talking about, you know, I, I alkalize with kale or some kind of garbage like that, correct? Oh, I wish it was that simple. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Oh, I wish it was that simple. I, I wish there was a way you could actually uh, alkalinize yourself. This is this is a problem inside your cells, and it's all about maintaining balance. Um, and when when you start getting unbalanced, uh, your cells have mechanisms to get themselves back into balance again. Uh, and what we need to do is we need to shore up the ability of the cells to get back into balance. We need to shore up the ability of of your body to get back into balance. Like, I hope they come up with a pill for COVID. Um, Plaquenil is really, really interesting because Plaquenil, uh, it was originally derived from Cinchona. Uh, the Jesuits brought it, brought it to, uh, to uh, Europe. They discovered that it was effective for malaria uh, because it's been in Western medicine. They've done a lot of work with it and they've looked and they said, well, it seems to reduce chronic inflammation. And so we started using it in rheumatologic disease. Um, and it seems to be quite effective uh, at reducing the, the level of metabolic inflammation. Uh, one of the problems with Plaquenil, though, and, and one of the reasons why I'm really hesitant about people recommending it for COVID, it's been almost over-refined. Um, one, one of the issues we have with Western medicine is Western medicine is very focused on power and purity. And so Plaquenil is very powerful and it's very pure and it can actually drop your blood sugar levels because one of the reasons why your blood sugars are high may be because you have chronic inflammation. You settle that down, next thing you know, you're dealing with, with potentially life-threatening hypoglycemia. Um, and, and so figuring out how to 
mitigate and, and settle things down. Um, you were asking how in the ICU I would start to deal with cytokine storm. I would start with something like a lidocaine infusion because we know that lidocaine infusions uh, reduce IL-6 activity, uh, which is an inflammatory interleukin. We know that lidocaine promotes IL-10 activity. But the nice thing about lidocaine is it does it within the 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 context of a functioning human uh, physiology. It works with our physiology uh, rather than replacing or fighting against our physiology. And so we can achieve those things um, and try to mitigate the effect rather than completely blocking the effect. Do you think there are any uh, emergency rooms today who see someone who's getting sepsis, who's not doing well with COVID, who've just decided to do a lidocaine drip. I, I've not heard this in the discussion. I'm, I'm in a lot of discussion groups with physicians. Uh, by the way, I'm just, if you're new to the show, I'm not a physician. I just uh, play one on the internet, except not really. <laughs> I just, I talk with a lot of them because I care a lot about translating it. Is this common? I know as an anesthesiologist it might be common. Is anyone else doing this for IL-6 or is this a new innovation? I don't know if anybody's doing it yet. I've been speaking with our intensivists in Alberta, and and uh, it's it's being added to our protocol because um, it just people know the physiology and people know that it might help, and and it's one of those things that is unlikely to hurt, um, and and so it's it's uh, it's on our protocol, and and uh, it will be interesting to see how much of an impact that it has. Um, there will be other therapies that come along. Plaquenil is one of them, as long as you're being careful with it. There, there are other um, uh, therapies that are that are available. Um, you were asking what what people could do just themselves at home and and eating eating good spicy food. You were talking about about cayenne pepper. A cayenne pepper does have some function with substance P. Uh, there are there are like black cumin has has uh, its. It's I love black cumin as a spice. I made an African biryani a couple of days ago. And one of the reasons I, that I used it was because it has some anti-inflammatory properties as well. The same thing goes with Indian spices and things like turmeric. There are things that we can do just with the 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 ancient pharmacology that we have uh, that that is is used in so many places to spice their food uh, that, that we can use to kind of improve our, our resilience and eat a better diet while we're while we're getting ready to deal with this COVID crisis. I would uh, offer for listeners, there's an episode probably five or 10 ago where I talk about IL-6 and I went through about 40 different things that you can eat or take as a supplement that reduce IL-6 and the things you just listed are on there. And black cumin is a very popular uh, Middle Eastern spice. I was in Oman and UAE right before all this happened and it's on the shelf everywhere, it's pretty cool. And I take capsules full of the oil, black human oil is very potent for this. I just do that regularly because I don't like being inflamed all the time. Uh, so I, I love it because few physicians are talking about, hey, maybe we do that and this other stuff. But I, I'm gonna go back to lidocaine because you can buy lidocaine cream right now or lidocaine ointment and it absorbs very well topically. So if you were at the beginning of getting sick, whether or not uh, you know it's COVID or it's just a virus or a cold or something, um, I'm curious about maybe smearing some on, oh, the trigeminal nerve, jaw, forehead, chest, and just getting some of that in to reduce that inflammation right at the beginning. Have you ever tried that? Does it sound like it could work? 
I would be a little concerned about doing that. I just, I, you, you, you mentioned when we were talking earlier about about uh, about uh, the way you're using lidocaine. Um, lidocaine is is one of those chemicals that that um, if you start absorbing too much of it, you can start getting symptoms and side effects uh, that can actually become dangerous or life-threatening. And that's why I'd kind of be leaning towards things like uh, just the, uh, the, uh, the, the vitamin therapy. The, the system that Mansoor uh, and, and I are putting together in the Stay Safe app uh, with the 70 questions, we're really leading people into improving your immunologic function with, with, uh, with, with vitamin therapy. Uh, dealing with your inflammatory status with with appropriate vitamin therapy, we touch a little bit on on things like why plaquenil seems to be working from a chronic metabolic inflation perspective. But again, it's not something that we would we would actually recommend. Um, lidocaine is one of those uh, compounds that has been again very 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 refined, um, and if if your levels get too high, you can you can end up having consequence from it. So I would I would leave that one in the hands of of, uh, of practitioners. Well, the, the difference between an IV dose, and I mean, it is an over-the-counter thing, at least in the US. Uh, in fact, I buy 5% lidocaine from my local pharmacy here without a prescription in Canada. Um, and we're talking you know, a, a little bit on the end of your finger for topical use. It, it seems like at those doses, if it was highly dangerous, we probably wouldn't be selling it that way. Well, and and the amount that's in things like the salon paws and things like that that you put on your back, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be concerned about that. I'd be concerned about people just digging in too deep and and starting to to give themselves too much of anything. Yeah, because okay, so marinating in in you know the highest strength you can get is probably not a good idea because you want dose control if you're if you're really sick. I have found and I've actually been taught by a functional medicine guy, Dwight Jennings. The, the normal, you know, couple pumps of whatever the consumer thing is over the trigeminal nerve um, has been able to reverse like early onset. I feel like I'm getting a cold probably because of that IL-6 thing, um, but it's not going to treat COVID. Could it blunt your response? Uh, or you're just saying even that that level of dose is, you know, from a topical painkiller, you know, muscle soreness kind of rub, even that isn't worth doing or we just don't have data. We just don't have data at this point. I think that it's. I think that it will be interesting. I think that as as uh, time progresses, one of one of the reasons why we built the Stay Safe uh, app that that uh, that that we've been doing is as a data collection tool as well. Can we uh, get that now, or is it not available? It should be. Uh, the IBM has promised us next week, so I would say probably the week after that. Okay, so it's very close, and that'll be listed probably from the homepage of the DNA company. Yes. Um, okay. Good deal. Um, and the DNA company does DNA testing for other things like that. I've I've been working really closely, uh, and I'm I'm pretty excited about what's happening with functional genomics uh, on that side of things. So, stay safe is the name of the app. By the time this comes out in two three days, uh, we'll see. But okay, so people go there, um, and it's going to um, as much as anything function as a data collection tool because people will be participating in it. People will be entering all of their data. Uh, we'll have a, a symptom tracker as well uh, to give people some advice on how to deal with their systems, both with over-the-counter and, and home therapies and, and some of this functional medicine stuff as well. Um, and then collecting that information, tracking what's working and what isn't working. And that's the point where we'll actually be able to start answering these questions that you're talking about. Uh, getting ahead of COVID, um, it's going to require crowdsourcing way more than, than than we've been doing right now. Uh, one of the issues that we're having with medicine is 
we're playing catch up and we acknowledge that we're playing catch up because none of us really know what to do internally. That's why our immune systems are overacting. None of us really know how much to do systemically. And that's why we're all in complete lockdown and quarantine because we're using the tools that we have. Uh, but what tools are really necessary? What is actually effective? That's a situation where uh, having having a system where we can get some useful advice about how to support our systems through this, where we actually participate uh, with entering our information, participate in the tracking and the feedback so we can all uh, collectively and anonymously know how we're doing going forward so that then we can start to surface what therapies are working so we can answer questions like, like is uh, B vitamin support the answer? Uh, is selenium the answer? is like like it would be really wonderful if lidocaine is something that could actually be used uh in in the way that you described to make a to make a positive difference now i i i look at this i'm interested in results and i'm willing to do things that don't work as long as they're more likely to work than doing nothing right which, which is not the hippocratic oath and i'm willing to do this on myself and so i, I look at this and say okay Let's look at this this hypoxic thing I talked about earlier from from that guy. I know about pseudohypoxia and something about pain. So for that, thiamine and magnesium are shown in studies to be useful. So I could say, all right, I'm going to because none of those are proven to work <laughs> to make it less likely that you're going to end up in the hospital with COVID. I could say since they're not proven, I'm going to follow what the the good Dr. Fauci, um, who is a, a chemical apologist. Um, what, what he's going to tell us to do and say, since nothing's proven, let's do nothing. Let's just have pizza, beer, and hide in our houses. Or I could say, screw that noise. Uh, I would like to not be average. So I'm going to do the things that are likely to make me above average in my ability to handle this. Even a 10 or 20% swing into high resilience mode might save your life or at least make you more comfortable. So from that, I'm like, can I take thiamine and magnesium? Oh, and maybe some vitamin C. Yes. Would I love to share the fact in a survey that I am doing that. And then at the end of this, say, oh, my um, IgM test, the one that shows they have natural immunity. What do you know? It says I have natural immunity, but I didn't notice I got sick. Let's record that data. Let's share it with others along with some stuff that I'm doing. This is the future of humanity as far as I can tell. And I love that you're building the app. But, but right now, there's tons of people who are going to do a ton of stuff that cannot possibly be clinical tested like uh, the the medication you were talking about. Um how do we as as you know mere mortals without white lab coats and MDs, how do we decide, you know what? Of course it's not proven, but it might work and it's more likely to work than the current path. Therefore, I'll do it knowing I may lose my 50 bucks on my bottle of supplements. It's like, how do you think about this? I, I think about it as as something that's absolutely an, essential in situations like this. You you were talking about uh, about how uh, substance P. You thought that P stood for pain. It could stand for pain. It could stand for pandemics. It could be something. It could be something that drives our systemic learning, uh, so that we we learn uh, to to learn from each other rather than just learning learning from the the things that we already think we know. My one big struggle with academic medicine and, and the way it responds to situations like this is ac academic medicine assumes we know what questions to ask. Um, and, and if we don't even know what question to ask, we're never going to find the right answer. And that, um, that really 
uh, comes to the fore when you're dealing with a situation like this, uh, where we've never had to deal with the true systemic consequences in our incredibly complex and interconnected society of the way something like COVID can bring us down, not just internally, but also externally. It, with with exactly the same thing, like like internal inflammation and external inflammation, and and a, a storm of information that our buddy doesn't know how to deal with, um, and a storm of information that that we don't know how to deal with either. So yes, that's why we've built this system so that people can participate in crowdsourcing so the solution, identifying what works better. Uh, than, than what else, and identifying the simple things that we should do at the foundational level, uh, which is where our genomics insights comes in, so that our system is, is strengthened as much as possible in response to our own internal vulnerabilities that we may or may not be aware of. Like, your, your listeners uh, are probably more aware of, of this, you're certainly far more aware, the average person on the street uh, doesn't understand just how much their internal variability uh, can affect the way they respond to things like COVID or, or the medications that we use to treat COVID. COVID's a terrifying disease because it just, the flu also has about a 50% asymptomatic carriage rate. 50% of people will walk through the year not knowing that they had the flu. Uh, it shares that with COVID, but COVID has a five to 10% mortality rate, whereas the flu has a 0.1 to 0.2% mortality rate. Uh, and that's probably partially because it's the first time that we've seen it. But the one thing we can know for sure, this isn't the first time we're ever, or this isn't the last time we're ever gonna be exposed to a virus that, that we've, we've never seen before. And learning how to deal with that better is one of the most important lessons we're gonna get, get out of this crisis. I like it that you you describe uh, this whole situation with with the virus, and you said that the virus is almost perfectly designed to bring us and our health systems down with this hurricane force cytokine storm. Talk a little bit more about how this type of virus is bringing our health systems down, uh, not just uh, us individually. Well, we're so afraid of of um, uh, what can happen because we don't know what is going to happen uh, individually and systemically. Like if we could identify what patients are uh, going to be the ones who are more likely to have a severe response to COVID um, with something like our Stay Safe app, our hypothesis is certainly focused on, on metabolic inflammation. As the system learns and goes forward, we may identify some other things that 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 are actually increasing increasing your risk as well. And, and being able to learn from and respond to that is, is a very useful thing. But at this point, we don't know. So we have to make all these massive preparations for the worst case uh, possible. And at the same time, COVID gets into our body. Um, it, it plugs into something called the ACE2 receptor, which is actually the receptor that breaks down angiotensin 2 and deactivates it after it's done its, its duty helping, uh, helping uh, modulate our, our blood pressure. Um, and that receptor is particularly present in the lungs, so it's, it's easy for COVID to get in. It's particularly present in our blood vessels, uh, so it, it spreads rapidly. It's particularly present in our heart, because our heart is basically a large, complex blood vessel. It's also particularly present in our colon. And that's the thing that worries me, because our colon, 
um, is in a lot of us just a cytokine storm waiting to happen. Again, if our gut biome is bad, uh, if our gut biome is, is, is contributing to our chronic inflammation, then that inflammation that we start to see on our colon can also put it as increased risk. And, and that's, that's as yet an unanswered question, uh, what role the colon is playing in all of this. All we know is that there's a lot of, of ACE2 receptors in the colon as well. Um, that is uh, uh, something that that is really of concern for people who vape or smoke, right? Because uh, if you use nicotine in via those pathways, we think the virus gets in via the lungs. You get a lot more ACE two receptors, and that probably explains why um, why people who smoke have a much higher chance of getting sick and dying from this. Is there something you would do uh, as a medical doctor, if you knew someone was a smoker and was starting to have symptoms versus wasn't a smoker, would you do like an ACE blocker? Uh, would you put them on uh, some sort of blood pressure lowering medication? Any any thoughts about that? You know, the number one thing is just to tell them to stop smoking. Uh, it's just the the big trouble with smoking. It's like yes, there are the nicotine effects, but there are there are the direct effects of the carbon monoxide. That that is just if you quit smoking three days later, it's as if you got a big blood transfusion. Um, that carbon monoxide actually contributes to your mitochondrial mitochondrial dysfunction because carbon monoxide is a very specific toxin for the mitochondria, and, and so exposing yourself to carbon monoxide from your smoking uh, is so risky at so many levels, but it's also a really quick intervention that you can make to increase your ability to, to resist and respond and recover from something like COVID. Some people are suggesting that you might want to take an ACE2 inhibitor uh, uh, to lower your risk of COVID. Do you think there's any, uh, any uh, validity to that? I have absolutely no idea about that. I know it's a question people are looking at. I'm a little concerned that there's no answer yet because it, it's a pretty obvious go-to. As soon as we knew that that uh, that COVID plugs into the ACE2 receptor, uh, we know the function of the ACE2 receptor. Uh, we know that it's it's uh, it's increased in in people uh, on a on actually a wide variety of drugs. These are questions that people started asking immediately, uh, even from the academic medicine side. It's it's a question that they know to ask. Um, and they're asking that question, and we're not getting any answers yet, which makes me think that there's probably uh, probably not a lot there. How do you approach a, a pandemic like this as a you know working medical uh, professional who has to go in and do emergency procedures on a regular basis? You you're dealing with someone who looks like they might be really critical, uh, and you're saying, all right, the the normal stuff we have is we don't really know whether anything works, right? So. Anything you use is almost by definition either you know off-label or experimental. How do you go through the process? I'm kind of asking you as a proxy for what you're trained to do in medical school, but how do you go through the process of saying, you know what, I guess I'll give this guy some vitamin C or I'm going to try, in your case, I'm going to try lidocaine because it's unlikely to harm and the guy looks like he's going to die anyway. So, you know, what what level do you have to hit to say, you know what, here, have some ACE2 stuff. I don't know what else to do. Let's just try it. Uh, and I guess I'm asking you as a Canadian doctor, the answer is different for an American doctor because of liability, but um, just t walk me through the decision tree in your mind uh, when you're dealing with a pandemic situation like this. Well, you know, it just, this is, this is speaks to how I was trained at, at Stanford university when I was learning to do ICU medicine down there. Uh, you fight the battles, uh, you know how to fight. 
Uh, you you win the battles. You know how to win. If you don't know what to do, it's like you've seen the movie Frozen 2. If, if you don't know what to do, do the next right thing. It's actually a really good rule to live by. It's a really good rule to make medical medical decisions by. Don't do things that you know are wrong. Um, if you see a problem, fix the problem. Um, if you if you know uh, ways that you can improve someone's functioning, yes, do that thing. Like for instance, lidocaine infusion. I know that if I've got someone who's got a breathing tube in place. Being on a lidocaine infusion, if nothing else, it'll help them be more comfortable with that breathing tube, and uh, and uh, it will it will uh, have less hemodynamic consequence. It'll have less effect on on the blood pressure than some of the other agents that I could choose. And so, I would make the decision to use that uh, before I made the decision to use a a drug like uh, like propofol, for instance, because propofol uh, does have some effects on particularly in the long term, on the way uh, your body deals uh, with, with, uh, with uh, redox reactions, even at the mitochondrial level. So the deeper you dig into the physiology of all of these things, the more effective you can make a, an effective treatment plan that even if you don't know what to do, you can still choose to do the next right thing. Does it have much of an influence if a patient comes in the door and says, Doc, I know there's stuff that's the standard tree that you go down. If that stuff doesn't work, like I, I'm, I like to be a guinea pig. I like to be an experimentalist. Like you have permission to do things that might work if you got no other options. Does that make you feel more comfortable, more safer? Or are you of the mindset that like, hey, uh, once you're on my table, you do what I say? Um, I like to, you know, it, it just one of the ways that, I, that I've always practiced medicine is I try to deal with a specific concern that a patient may bring to me. Uh, because if they're worried about something, that's the thing that they're worried about. It may be something that I don't tend to worry about, but I, I try to pay particular attention to that to kind of honor their expectation. And similarly, I try very hard to fulfill the the expectation or the need of the patient, uh, even if they come to me with some therapy that that I may think is is potentially off the wall. Um, first of all, I'll probably learn from it. Uh, second of all, uh, I have this sense that sometimes people know more than they think uh, they know. Uh, you, you, you're, are you familiar with the Rumsfeld rules of knowledge? There, there's the stuff that you know you know. There's the stuff that you don't know you know. There's the stuff that you you uh, know that you don't know. Right. But it's the stuff that you don't know that you don't know that's going to get you. Right. And And it's just being cognizant of that. Um, as I'm dealing with people, I do tend to try to try to work within within the the framework and the boundaries that they set for me. So yeah, bottom line, if someone comes to me and says, "I want you to do this," um, if I can figure out how to do it in a way that's safe, I will do that. Well, I I appreciate that open mindedness, and I think a lot of people uh, who listen to the show are aware that you know sometimes you go into the medical system, especially emergency situations, and they will follow a set of you know set of rules that you might not want. So you might say, "Look, I really don't want antibiotics unless it's last, you know, unless it's really important." Because I've worked for two years on restoring my gut microbiome. Thank you very much. But the standard is, well, we're not quite sure. Here, have some, right? And so th to be able to have that conversation, I I like to coach people on how to have it in a way that doesn't alienate doctors, because your doctor should be your partner in healing. And frankly, if you're unconscious and intubated, it's nice if you at least told them ahead of time, you know. 
it's okay to give me a little something extra if you need to. Like, you know, t- take a risk to save my life. I'm good. And just, you know, sh- share the mindset there. I, I feel like that's worth doing. And I, I feel like your answer was like, hey, it's not going to hurt. Well, there, there's a lot of like, I, again, I, I don't want to I don't want to come down hard on Western medicine because it, it's it's done a lot of good. But again, the the, the assumption that that uh, we should use what has worked in the past um, is is. Uh, something that tends to put blinders on uh, in a way that that uh, that doesn't always do us do us the the best. Uh, and and pain is a good example. We started with this conversation about pain that that our uh, societies have been dealing with pain for six thousand years. Um, and throughout our world, there are there are all kinds of therapies other than opium based therapies we 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 call opium a pain killer for for a good reason that 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 opium is really really good for pain control uh but only to the extent that it makes the pain totally go away it can also make you totally go away whereas in in all of our societies around the world We've got things like, well, for instance, the cinchona root that that has turned into plaquenil. That has an anti-inflammatory function. You you were talking about black cumin. That has an anti-inflammatory and analgesic function. Um, there are there are treatments in India. There are treatments in China. Um, there there is a vast array of of uh, non-considered therapies out there, uh, and. Put that in the context of something like, for instance, acetaminophen. Uh, acetaminophen has been in common clinical usage uh, since the since the the, the 19th century. Uh, it was originally developed uh, by Bayer uh, because Bayer was an aniline dye company. They were actually a paint company. They were experimenting with aniline dyes. They found this one chemical uh, that that had an anti-inflammatory function. We didn't know how it worked for a hundred years. We were giving it to our children for the last hundred years. Only in the last 10 to 20 years, as we've started to do research with endocannabinoids, have we even discovered that there is an endocannabinoid system and that Tylenol actually interacts with our endocannabinoid system. Uh, we're, we're very focused right now on whether or not people should be on cannabis and, and, and other cannabinoid derivatives like, like CBD. Uh, we've been using cannabinoid derivatives in our children for 50 years. And because it entered through the pathway of Western medicine, we were very comfortable using it, even though if you read the textbooks, like there are textbooks that were published two years ago that talk about how it's really not well known how it works. But we've been using this stuff. And yet there's all of these other therapies that that are potentially available to us that again, yes, we don't know how they work either, but they're safe enough that we use them as foods and we use them as spices. It's like cinchona root is is now used to flavor tonic water. And the reason why they call it tonic water is because it's derived from the tonic that was used to uh, to, to fight malaria. And, and so there there is a tendency to to poo poo things that didn't enter through uh, the, the Western medicine pathway um, with with less than no cause because there's stuff that's in the western medicine pathway uh that that we understand less well than we understand the chemicals that that make up a lot of our supplements and nutraceuticals Uh, it makes a lot of sense uh that does beg the question if you had to choose one 
take CBD oil orally or don't take CBD oil orally during the pandemic, which would you do? At this point, I would take CBD oil. Yeah, I, I think so too, because we know it has an effect on lowering inflammation, which is the name of the game, right? So I, there, there's an argument for it. It doesn't prove it's going to work, but is it more likely to work than not work? And is it likely to cause harm? I'm not seeing the harm pathway there. More importantly, it has an effect of modulating inflammation. Remember I was telling you that the problem, the problem is the difference between fighting against something as opposed to fighting with something. If we're fighting with our body's physiology, if we're kind of fighting alongside our body's physiology, if we're using tools that improve uh, the way our body is able to fight and able to recover, as opposed to just trying to blanketly oppose something that our body is actually trying to do, um, we're, we're more likely to be in the absence of any, any certainty about what to do. And again, if data starts to come out, if we start seeing data, there's a lot of people doing CBD oil all across Canada. If we start seeing data that says people who are taking CBD oil are more likely to suffer, then we need to respond to that appropriately. If we start seeing data, on the other hand, that say people who take CBD oil are less likely to suffer, we also need to be able to respond to that appropriately as well. Keep on cranking through it, and uh, thank you for the work you're doing in hospitals right now. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for the work that you're doing in the public. It's like you are a positive anti-inflammatory cytokine. So, wow, I'm IL-10. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> if you like today's episode, uh, you know what to do. Uh, I'd be grateful if you would take oh about ten seconds and you would go over to uh, iTunes and just leave a quick review that says, "Hey, this show is worth my time." And if you really like what's going on here, head on over to the DNA Company webpage and check out their work. Check out the DNA analysis they've done mine. You can actually hear discussions about my genes on the show about what effect that has on my risk, on my inflammation. And I think you're going to find that's valuable for you as well. And I'm sure we'll get to the link for the new AI testing. It's just a survey you can do that's going to tell you a bunch of things and let you share your knowledge with millions of others just by sharing what works and what doesn't work. Have a beautiful day. Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.